Chapter 16 After which Brother Etienne de Provins, brought into the presence of the aforesaid officials and asked by them to defend the order, said he did not wish to. If the masters wished to defend it, they could, but before his arrest he had been in the order only nine months. Deposition, November 27, 1309 In Abulafia I found other tales of Belbo's running away, and I thought about them that evening as I stood in the darkness in the periscope, listening to a sequence of rustling sounds, squeaks, creaks, and telling myself not to panic because that was how museums, libraries, and antique palaces talk to themselves at night. It is only old cupboards settling, window frames reacting to the evening's humidity, plaster crumbling at a miserly millimeter per century rate, walls yawning. You can't run away, I told myself. You're here to learn what happened to a man who, in a mad or desperate act of courage, tried once and for all to stop running away perhaps in order to hasten his encounter, so many times postponed, with the truth. File Name Canal Was it from a police charge, or once again from history, that I ran away? Does it make any difference? Did I go to the march because of a moral choice, or to subject myself to yet another test of opportunity? Granted, I was either too early or too late for all the great opportunities— but that was the fault of my birth date. I would have liked to be in that field of bullets, shooting, even at the price of hitting Granny. But I was absent because of age, not because of cowardice. All right. And what about the march? Again, I ran away for a generational reason. It was not my conflict. But I could have taken the risk even so, without enthusiasm, to prove that if I had been in the field of bullets, I would have known how to choose. Does it make sense to choose the wrong opportunity just to convince yourself that you would have chosen the right one, had you the opportunity? I wonder how many of those who opt for fighting today do it for that reason. But a contrived opportunity is not the right opportunity. Can you call yourself a coward simply because the courage of others seems to you out of proportion to the triviality of the occasion? Thus wisdom creates cowards and thus you miss opportunity while spending your life on the lookout for it. You have to seize opportunity instinctively, without knowing at the time that it is the opportunity. Is it possible that I really did seize it once without knowing? How can you feel like a coward because you were born in the wrong decade? The answer? You feel like a coward because once you were a coward. But suppose you passed up the opportunity because you felt it was inadequate. Describe the house in, name omitted, isolated on the hill among the vineyards, don't they call those breast-shaped hills, and then the road that led to the edge of town, to the last row of houses, or the first, depending on the direction you come from, the little evacuee who abandons the protection of his family and ventures into the tentacular town, walking the broad avenue, skirting the alley he so enviously fears. The alley was the gathering place of the alley gang. Country boys, dirty, loud. I was too citified. Better to stay away from them. But to reach the square and the newspaper kiosk and the stationery store, unless I essayed a circumnavigation almost equatorial and quite undignified, the only course was to go along the canal. And the boys of the alley gang were little gentlemen compared to the canal gang, named after a former stream, now a drainage ditch, that ran through the poorest part of town. The canal kids were filthy sub-proletarians, and violent, 
The alley kids couldn't cross the canal area without being attacked and beaten up. At first I didn't know that I was an alley kid. I had just arrived, but already the canal gang had identified me as an enemy. I walked through their area with a children's magazine open before my face, reading as I went. They saw me. I ran. They chased me, throwing stones. One stone went right through a page of the magazine, which I was still holding in front of me as I ran, trying to retain a little dignity. I got away but lost the magazine. The next day I decided to join the alley gang. I presented myself at their Sanhedrin and was greeted with cackles. My hair was very thick at the time, and it tended to stand up on my head a bit like Struvelpather's. The style in those days, as shown in movies and ads or on Sunday strolls after Mass, featured young men with broad-shouldered, double-breasted jackets, greased mustaches, and gleaming hair combed straight back and stuck to their skulls. And that's what I wanted, sleek hair like that. In the market square, on a Monday, I spent what for me was an enormous sum on some boxes of brilliantine thick as bean-flower honey. Then I spent hours smearing it on until my hair was laminated, a leaden cap, a camoro. Then I put on a net to keep my hair tightly compressed. The alley gang had seen me go by wearing the net and had shouted taunts in that harsh dialect of theirs, which I understood but couldn't speak. That particular day, after staying two hours in the house with the net on, I took it off, checked the splendid result in the mirror, and set out to meet the gang to which I hoped to swear allegiance. I approached them just as the brilliantine was losing its glutinous power and my hair was again assuming in slow motion its vertical position. Delight among the alley kids in a circle around me, nudging one another. I asked to be admitted. Unfortunately, I spoke in Italian. An outsider. Their leader, Martinetti, who seemed a giant to me then, came forward, splendid, barefoot. He decided I should undergo one hundred kicks in the behind. Maybe the kicks were meant to reawaken the serpent Kundalini. I agreed and stood against the wall. Two sergeants held my arms, and I received one hundred barefoot kicks. Martinetti applied himself to his task with vigor and skill, striking sideways so he wouldn't hurt his toes. The gang served as chorus for the ritual, keeping count in their dialect. Then they shut me up in a rabbit hutch for half an hour while they passed the time in guttural conversation. They let me out when I complained that my legs were numb. I was proud because I had been able to stand up to the liturgy of a savage tribe. I was a man called Horse. In, name omitted, in those days were stationed Latter-day Teutonic Knights, who were not particularly alert because the partisans hadn't yet made themselves felt. This was toward the end of forty-three, the beginning of forty-four. One of our first exploits was to slip into a shed, while some of us splattered the soldier on guard duty, a great Longobard eating an enormous sandwich of, we thought and were horrified, salami and jam. The decoys distracted the German, praising his weapons, while the rest of us crept through some loose planks in the back of the shed and stole a few sticks of TNT. I don't believe the explosive was ever used subsequently, but the idea was, according to Martinetti's plan, to set it off in the countryside, for purely pyrotechnical purposes and by methods I now know were very crude and would not have worked. Later, the Germans were replaced by the fascist marines of the Decimamas, who set up a roadblock near the river, right at the crossroads where the girls from the school of Santa Maria Auxiliatrice came down the avenue at six in the evening. Martinetti convinced the Decima marines, who couldn't have been over eighteen, to tie together a bunch of hand grenades left by the Germans, the ones with a long pin, and remove the safeties so they could explode at the water's edge at the exact moment the girls arrived. Martinetti knew how to calculate the timing. He explained it to the fascists, and the effect was prodigious. 
A sheet of water rose up along the bank in a thunderous din, just as the girls were turning the corner. General flight, much squeaking, and we and the fascists split our sides laughing. The survivors of Allied imprisonment would remember that day of glory, second only to the burning of Molay. The chief amusement of the alley kids was collecting shell cases and other war residue, which, after September 8th and the German occupation of Italy, were plentiful—old helmets, cartridge pouches, knapsacks, sometimes live bullets. This is what you did with a good bullet. Holding the shell case in one hand, you stuck the projectile into a keyhole, twisted it, and pulled out the case, adding it to your collection. The gunpowder was emptied out—sometimes there were thin strips of ballastite—and deposited in serpentine trails that were set alight. The casings, especially prized if the caps were intact, went to enrich one's army. A good collector would have a lot of them arranged in rows by make, color, shape, and origin. There were squads of foot soldiers, which were submachine gun and sten casings, then squires and knights, which were 1891 rifle shells—we saw garrons only after the Americans came—and finally a boy's supreme ambition, towering grandmasters, which were empty machine-gun shells. One evening, as we were absorbed in these peaceful pursuits, Martinetti informed us that the moment had come. A challenge had been sent to the canal gang, and they had accepted. The battle was to take place on neutral ground behind the station, that night at nine. It was late afternoon on a summer day, enervating but charged with excitement. We decked ourselves out in the most terrifying paraphernalia, looking for pieces of wood that could be easily gripped, filling pouches and knapsacks with stones of various sizes. Some of us made whips out of rifle slings, awesome if wielded with decision. During those twilight hours we all felt like heroes, me most of all. It was the excitement before the attack, bitter, painful, splendid. So long, Mama, I'm off to Yokohama. Send the word over there. We were sacrificing our youth to the fatherland, just as they had taught us in school before September 8th. Martinetti's plan was shrewd. We would cross the railroad embankment farther to the north and come at them from behind, take them by surprise, and thus would be victors from the start. Then no quarter would be granted. At dusk we crossed the embankment, scrambling up ramps and across gullies, loaded down with stones and clubs. From the crest of the embankment we saw them lying in ambush behind the station latrines, but they saw us too because they were watching their backs, suspecting we would arrive from that direction. The only thing for us to do was to move in without giving them time for astonishment at the obviousness of our ploy. Nobody had passed around any grappa before we went over the top, but we flung ourselves into battle anyway, yelling. Then came the turning point, when we were about a hundred meters from the station. There stood the first houses of the town, and though they were few they created a web of narrow paths. There the boldest group dashed forward, fearless, while I, and luckily for me a few others, slowed down and ducked behind the corners of the houses to watch from a distance. If Martinetti had organized us into vanguard and rearguard, we would have done our duty, but this was a spontaneous deployment, those with guts in front and the cowards behind. So from our refuges—mine was farther back than the others—we observed the conflict, which never took place. The two groups came within a few meters of each other and stood in confrontation, snarling. Then the leaders stepped forward to confer. Yalta. They decided to divide their territories into zones and agreed to allow an occasional safe-conduct pass like Christians and Moslems in the Holy Land. Solidarity between groups of knights had prevailed over the ineluctability of battle. Each side had proved itself. The opposing camps withdrew in harmony, still opponents, 
in opposite directions. Now I tell myself that I didn't rush into the attack because I found it laughable, but that's not what I told myself then. Then I felt like a coward, and that was that. Today, even more cowardly, I tell myself that as it turned out I would have risked nothing had I charged with the others, and my life afterward would have been better. I missed opportunity at the age of twelve. If you fail to have an erection the first time, you are impotent for the rest of your life. A month later, some random trespass brought the alley and canal gangs face to face in a field, and clods of earth began to fly. I don't know whether it was because the outcome of the earlier conflict had reassured me, or because I desired martyrdom, but one way or another this time I stood in the front line. A clod which concealed a stone struck my lip and split it. I ran home crying, and my mother had to use the tweezers from her toilet case to pick pieces of earth out of the wound on the inside of my lip. In fact, I was left with a lump next to the lower right canine, and even now, when I run my tongue over it, I feel a vibration, a shudder. But this lump does not absolve me, because I got it through heedlessness, not through courage. I run my tongue over my lip, and what do I do? I write. But bad literature brings no redemption. After the day of the march, I didn't see Belbo again for about a year. I fell in love with Amparo and stopped going to Pilates, or at least the few times I did drop in with Amparo, Belbo wasn't there. Amparo didn't like the place anyway. In her moral and political severity, equaled only by her grace, her magnificent pride, she considered Pilates a clubhouse for liberal dandies, and liberal dandyism, as far as she was concerned, was a subtle thread in the fabric of the capitalist plot. For me, this was a year of great commitment, seriousness, and enchantment. I worked joyfully but serenely on my thesis. Then one day I ran into Belbo along the Navigli, not far from the Garamont office. "'Well, look who's here,' he said cheerfully. "'My favorite Templar. "'Listen, I've just been presented with a bottle of ineffably ancient nectar. "'Why don't you come up to the office? "'I have paper cups and a free afternoon.' "'Zugma,' I said. "'No, bourbon, and bottled, I believe, before the fall of the Alamo.' "'I followed him. "'We had just taken the first sip when Gudrun came in "'and said there was a gentleman to see Belbo. "'He slapped his forehead. "'He had forgotten the appointment.' But Chance has a taste for conspiracy, he said to me. From what he had gathered, this individual wanted to show him a book that concerned the Templars. I'll get rid of him quickly, he said, but you must lend me a hand with some keen objections. It had surely been Chance, and so I was caught in the net.